Jotham may have been the writer. We don't know for certain, but there is some very strong evidences of that. Um, and since he was uh, focused on the spiritual condition of the nation, of uh, we understand that these books have a very strong uh, spiritual tone to them. Uh, in fact, we're going to look at uh, 20 different kings of Judah. Second uh, Chronicles specifically deals almost exclusively uh, with the southern kingdom of Judah. And the reason for that is in the time of Judah's uh, southern kingdom, the divided kingdom reigned, uh, there were a number of kings <coughs> that brought reformation and some of them even revival uh, to the nation. And so God prolongs the, um, the uh, demise of Judah longer than the, the time of Israel. Israel had no good kings. The ten northern tribes had no good kings during their reign, and they were continuously found in idolatry and uh, would not turn to God. <clears throat> and so Judah uh, is primarily the focus of First and Second Chronicles. Once we get past the reign of David in First Chronicles in the first nine chapters or so, and we begin to see a little bit of Solomon's reign uh, and the building of the temple. Then we have the divided kingdom. And Second Chronicles very, very clearly deals almost exclusively, I would say uh, probably about 70% or so of any record given of Judah uh, is given to the religious, um, the, the kings that were right before God, the ones that were religiously right uh, and loved the Lord and at least made an attempt to seek after the things of the Lord. Uh, there were eight of those kings, we'll look at them a little bit later, eight of them, that did some type of good turn for the, for the nation. Uh, they did not continuously stay in that during their reigns, uh, but they started out that way. They started out turning the, the nation from idols uh, back to God and getting their eyes back on God. Because of that, God gave some blessing. God, God gave some reprieve to the demise of the nation at that point, and uh, God spared them a number of times. But then there are 12 other kings that were very, very wicked uh, in Judah. And uh, about 70% of the time it deals with the righteous kings, the ones that did right. About 30% is given to the other 12 that did evil. So there's a very strong uh, emphasis, if you will, on the spiritual aspect of the history of Israel in both First and Second Chronicles. And it's written from a little different perspective. There are events found here that you won't find in First and Second Kings or in Second Samuel. Um, that uh, are primarily about the temple uh, or about the, the service in the temple or the worship in the temple, things that took place there, some of the revivals that took place in the history of Judah. <coughs> Judah. So we find several uh, reformer, <coughs> reformer kings. I'll give you a few of them uh, off the top. We'll look at them a little more specifically later. But you have Asa, who was probably uh, one of the, the, well, he was the first one of Judah that started to bring people back to the Lord. And had his eyes on the Lord. Jehoshaphat, uh, Joash, uh, Hezekiah, and then Josiah. <coughs> Excuse me. Josiah was the one uh, that was written about who found the book of the law uh, of the Lord. And he had it read before the children of Israel. And not only did he find it, he read it, and the people obeyed it. And because of that, saw great revival under his reign. Sad to say, towards the end of his reign... Uh, he lightened up and began to become sympathetic to allowing some idolatry back into the nation. And uh, as is so often the case with many of these kings that started out well. In fact, if you take time to study them, every single one of the eight what we would call righteous kings or kings that were good kings uh, 
uh, every single one of them uh, make some uh, push or direction towards coming back to God. They tear down the idols. They close down the altars of uh, idolatrous um, worship. Uh, some of them even destroy the altars, and they start off that way. By the end of their life or the second part of their reign, many times uh, you see them allowing this stuff to creep back in. And so any revival that takes place in Judah during the time, the 400-plus uh, years that's covered in Second Chronicles, any revival that you see lasts for one generation, and that's only under the king that it, it occurred under. It never extended beyond his reign. The next king was always a wicked king. And brought the country back into wickedness. By the way, we learned this, and we made this comment a couple weeks ago, that there is a valuable lesson to be learned in the reigns of even these righteous kings, that while we may start off strong in our life uh, as far as the things of the Lord, we start off uh, as a new Christian excited about the things of the Lord, and we just don't know anything better than to just trust the Bible and trust God and do what it says. And we've got to be so careful that as we age that we do not become lax or begin to compromise on these things, or begin to, to deviate from them, because it is the inclination of human nature to do so. Uh, we are prone to this. And knowing that, it ought to cause us to um, reaffirm often in our hearts that we are going to follow the Bible regardless of the cost. We're going to follow what God's Word says, and we need to make that commitment not just once in our life, but often throughout our life. We need to say, Lord, I want to make sure that I stay steadfast and unmovable in these areas. <clears throat> the worship in the temple, the service in the temple, is the central theme of the book. Uh, if you take the, the whole subject matter, there are specific things where it branches off. But if you take the, the book as a whole, it's dealing with the building of the temple, the worship in the temple, the service in the temple, uh, and those types of things. And there's a very, very strong emphasis on it. <clears throat> As we said, it's more than likely written or compiled by at least Ezra. Uh, there is at least the indication of such. Uh, we don't know for certain because the Bible doesn't tell us for certain. Uh, but there's very much some very strong similarities uh, between this one and the book of Ezra. Uh, we also find uh, some of the things that are spoken of here would have been easily accessible to Ezra. He would have, been, he would have had uh, the resources available. Uh, a lot of sources were used to write the history that's found in Second Chronicles specifically. <clears throat> I'm going to give you several of them that are found here. There were books that were kept, historical books. They were called the books of the kings of Israel. And then they had another set of books called the books of the kings of Judah. And they were just a historical record of the kings and what they did and what they accomplished in their lives. And, and we find a number of instances where it references that book that was written. Um, and we find that in First Chronicles chapter 9 and verse number 1. It mentions the book of the kings of either Israel and Judah or Israel or Judah. Uh, you'll find them in all of these references in First Chronicles chapter 9 and verse number 1. In Second uh, Chronicles 16 verse number 11, Second Chronicles 20 verse number 34, and Second Chronicles 25 and verse number 26. And I've got probably eight or ten more verses here that refer to getting some of this information from the book of the kings of Israel or the book of the kings of Judah, uh, in some cases from both of them. There's another one that was uh, given. It was called uh, the book of Samuel, which we get our book, First and Second Samuel, from. It was a single book at that time. So some of this uh, information came from that resource. Uh, it had already been written at this time. Some of it came from a book that Nathan the prophet wrote. We don't have that in our Bible. 
Uh, we have some words of Nathan the prophet when he comes to Daniel, and we have a narrative of, uh, of him approaching or Daniel, uh, David, excuse me, uh, and he approaches David and says, Thou art the man, and when he sinned with Bathsheba. So we have some record of Nathan's words, but he apparently wrote a book, and uh, also uh, it speaks of that, references that in First Chronicles chapter 29, and verse number 29 references that book. Brother Tom, good to see you today. So good to hear everything went well, so I'm praying for you. Um, also in Second Chronicles chapter 9, verse number 29, uh, we see the book of the prophet Nathan was also mentioned. Then there was another fellow by the name of Gad, uh, who was known as a seer, a prophet, uh, would get visions from God. And again, his book is not given in our scriptures. We don't have it in our scriptures, but he wrote a book. And so some of the resources came from that, First Chronicles chapter 29 and verse number 29. Then there was some prophecy by Hijah the Shilonite. Uh, that uh, we get some of this from. That's found in Second Chronicles chapter 9 and verse number 29. And uh, this is interesting to me uh, because there are people that are not part of the Israelites by birth, but were part of God's chosen people and the, the Jews by choice that God used throughout history. And uh, I'm thankful that God grafts us all in. I, I thought of this this week. I was studying for this Sunday school lesson. And a thought came to me. God chose the Jews. He chose the nation of Israel for one purpose. And that was to bring the Messiah to the world, to bring the world to the Messiah. Could you imagine being the nation that was chosen by God for that grand purpose to bring the Messiah, God's, uh, God's answer to the sins of men, the redemptive plan of man to the world and to bring the world to him? And uh, it's interesting that uh, God chooses and has chosen for these last 2,000 years since Israel uh, struggled with doing that and were struggling uh, with even coming to terms that Christ was the Messiah. God set them aside for a short while of history and now allows the church, uh, the local church, New Testament church, to be the ones that are holding this responsibility of bringing the gospel, the redemptive plan of man, to a lost and dying world. Can you imagine the privilege of that? What a joy in our hearts to think that God has allowed us to be a part of this. And uh, he uses this fellow, uh, Hijah the Shilonite, uh, to be part of the record or part of the source of what we find in Second Chronicles. He uses the visions of Ido the seer in Second Chronicles chapter number 9, verse number 29. Second Chronicles chapter 12, verse number 15. Uh, the book of Shemaiah, the prophet, the book of Jehu, the son of Hanani, the Acts of Uzziah by Isaiah, uh, some of the things that Isaiah records regarding Uzziah. Uh, in uh, the vision of Isaiah, the prophet specifically is given at this as one of the sources in Second Chronicles chapter 26 and verse number 22. Then uh, the saying of other seers, generally speaking, Second uh, Chronicles chapter 33 and verse number 19. The writing of David and his son Solomon. So some of the things that David penned, some of the things that Solomon penned are also included in Second Chronicles. And then various other uh, lists, genealogical lists and documents that came and, and uh, were accessible to Ezra through some of the kings that were in place at the time. Um, we have messages in Second Chronicles specifically 
We have some of the messages that were written, some of the letters that were written by Sennacherib. We find that in Second Chronicles chapter number 32 and verse number 10 through 17. And so we, we say all that to say this, that while God used Ezra uh, to author this, or more than likely used Ezra or one of his contemporaries to author this book, it is made up of numerous historical sources. Uh, and God used all of that to compile what we know as Second Chronicles. Um, the timing of Chronicles, as far as the stretch of period, if you'll remember back in First Chronicles, chapters 1 through 9 of First Chronicles uh, dealt with a large period of time, almost 400 years. And then the last part of that, from chapter 10 to the end of First uh, Chronicles, dealt with just a small span of David's reign, about 40 years or so. Second Chronicles is interesting because it does the reverse. It takes chapters 1 through 9 and deals with the 40 years or so after David's reign. And then the rest of the book of Second Chronicles, all the way through chapter number 32, uh, deals with uh, about 400 years of, of history. And so we kind of find it bookend and bracketed there by stretches of time found in these chapters. Um, <clears throat> it takes place from about 971 B.C. to about 538 B.C., uh, at the end of 20, year, uh, 20 uh, kings of Judah, <clears throat> we find the captivity of Babylon taking place. This is under Nebuchadnezzar. And so we leave Second Chronicles, and you can jump from Second Chronicles as far as chronologically. You could jump from uh, almost the end of Second Chronicles to the books of Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, those books that deal with the Babylonian captivity. Uh, in chapter 32, as we get to the end of Second Chronicles, you'll find that it deals with the returning of Judah, uh, the restoration of Judah, the decree that's given by Cyrus the Great, which was the king of Persia at the time, <clears throat> and reigned just a couple of years after Darius. In fact, he co-reigned with Darius for the first two years and then finally became the official Persian emperor uh, for the remainder of the time. And... Um, he gives the decree for Judah to be restored. It does not uh, begin in earnest until Artaxerxes comes to power and uh, Nehemiah, uh, under the authority of Artaxerxes, actually does the practical restoration of it. He goes back and begins to rebuild the walls and the foundation of the temple. But the decree is given by Cyrus uh, a few years before that, and, uh, and so Judah is able to be uh, restored then. Which, by the way, is an interesting thing to me, isn't it, to you? Um, God's long-suffering, God's willingness to, even though His chastening, His judgment has to come on us sometimes, that God sits there with arms wide open ready to receive us back. And after a history of uh, decline of Judah spiritually, God brings them into captivity for a number of years, about 400 years or so. But at the end of it, He restores them again. By the way... Even though God has postponed dealing with Israel for these last 2,000 years or so, He will once again restore them to His children and will once again work in them and through them uh, during the time of the tribulation period and following. And uh, just a, a wonderful testimony to the long-suffering, the grace, the forgiveness of God. And yes, there are sometimes some chastening and some things that He puts us through uh, the consequences of our sin. But aren't you glad He's always there with open arms to receive us back? And a wonderful truth that's shown here and pictured here. Let's look at the Christ of Chronicles. 
uh, we find that through the time of Second Chronicles, uh, we've seen David's throne being a uh, picture of Christ, or at least pointing to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the fact that there was a covenant that God made with David, saying that his throne would be forever and ever. Uh, we find when Judah goes into captivity, David's uh, throne is, for the while, uh, has um, uh, been destroyed, but it's still there in the background waiting for the Messiah, which he will come back during the, uh, the millennial reign and sit on the throne of David. And uh, so we understand that. But even though the throne has been uh, postponed, it's been paused for a while, it's still intact and God will still do it. The line of David is certainly intact. And so we get to the end of Second Chronicles and we find the lineage all the way from Adam through the time of David all the way to the Zerubbabel who was the, the king in power when Nebuchadnezzar uh, overthrows Jerusalem. All the way from Adam to Zerubbabel we see an unbroken line. And then we pick up that line when we get over to the book of Matthew, chapter number 1. And we see that line continue to the time of the Messiah. We also find it a little bit further in Luke, chapter 3. And uh, just an interesting thing that God proves and shows through Scripture that Jesus Christ is fulfillment of all prophecy of the Messiah that was coming, including being of the line of David. And while the throne was broken and destroyed uh, for a period and has been postponed until the end times, uh, we do find that the line in the lineage of David is unbroken, and God has continued to be a God of His Word. Um, there were a number of things that took place, especially in the times that are described here in Second Chronicles. We find uh, plotting against the line of David. Uh, in fact, there's uh, one king, we'll talk about him here in just a little bit, <coughs> who was very much influenced by Ahab. Ahab was the most wicked king of Israel to the north. And uh, this king actually was so influenced, he married Ahab's daughter, uh, Ahaziah. And uh, Ahab's daughter was one of, the most, one of the most wicked, wicked ladies. She came in and she tried to destroy the entire line of David. She, she started killing him, murdering him, plotting against him. And even through all of these trials, there was murder, there was treachery, there was battles, there was plotting, there was captivity. And you can look at this and you can see Satan trying all through this history to destroy the line of the Messiah. And yet he doesn't stand a chance, does he? God always preserves. God always works his promise and has preserved through all of this. By the way, isn't it interesting that there's something else that has been tried over and over again to destroy and yet is eternal? And that is his word. You know, the Bible says that he's exalted his word above his own name. It's interesting that so many people tried to destroy Scripture. Voltaire, who was uh, an infidel and an atheist, uh, made the statement, he said, within a hundred years, God's Word will be wiped off the earth. And isn't it interesting that almost exactly a hundred years later, after Voltaire was dead and in the grave, uh, a Bible printing society bought his residence and turned it into a place to publish Bibles. And uh, you almost think God has a sense of humor sometimes, and just the irony of that. But it doesn't matter how often men have tried to destroy God's plan through history, and Satan has certainly done his work to try to do everything he could to destroy God's plan. God is faithful. He is faithful. By the way, when he says that we will be forever secure, when he says that he has sealed us under the day of redemption, 
when he says that we will be saved and we shall be saved if we call upon the name of the Lord, if we put our faith and our trust in him, you can take him at his word because he has never failed. No matter how much men have tried to destroy the prophecy and the plans of God, they cannot do it. What he says goes. And what a wonderful truth that we find in this. Um, the temple is another figure of Christ that's portrayed in the Second Chronicles. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at a few passages here. Turn with me to Matthew chapter number 12. Matthew chapter number 12. And there are several things about the temple that are a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, uh, the, Bible, or the Bible speaks of the fact that the temple is kind of a, a prefigure or the picture of Christ, the coming Messiah. We find in Matthew chapter number 12, look with me in verse number 6. Jesus is speaking here. And he says, But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. The, the, the Jews were at this point in history, when Christ was on the scene, looked to the temple and said, Boy, that's, that's, that, that's the greatest thing. It's, it's not to be, you know, this is sacred. Everything's got to be right. Jesus comes along and says, Listen, uh, there's one greater than the temple, and he's standing right here in front of you. And so he was a precursor, a, pre, a prefigure, if you will, of, or the temple is a prefigure of Christ, pointing people to the fact that he was going to come here. Look with me in John chapter number 2. Not only was he compared to the temple here and, and contrasted to the temple by saying there was one greater than the temple, and that was him, and he was there in front of them. But let's look in John chapter number 2. I love this one. I love it all, don't you? This whole book is exciting. It's very good, isn't it? Let's look in John chapter number 2, and uh, let's look in verse number 19. And uh, my, there we go, get to the right place here. John chapter 2, verse number 19. Jesus once again says this, Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What is he referring to here? Is he speaking of the physical building? No, he's speaking of what? Himself, his own body, is a picture of the temple. And uh, isn't it wonderful that the temple itself is a picture of Christ? Uh, let's look in Revelation chapter 21. Now, this one hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. And uh, this kind of ties it all together. Again, showing that the temple is a picture of Christ himself. Uh, Revelation chapter 21 and verse number 22. <clears throat> John writes this, And I saw no temple. <laughs> Wait a minute, no temple? I mean, the temple has been the central theme. All the way from the time that God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, and He said, I want you to build me a tabernacle. Understanding this, that the purpose of the tabernacle and later the temple was so that God could be present with His people. He wanted that relationship restored. He wanted that close fellowship that was in the Garden of Eden before man fell. He walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And then when man sinned, a holy God who could not, be, uh, could not accept the sin, could not be part of the sin, and sinful man were at odds. The, the fellowship was broken. And when God establishes the tabernacle and later the temple, His desire, His purpose was for His presence to be among His people. Now that we're saved and that now that Calvary has taken place, uh, there's no need for that, that temple for God's presence to be there because now our bodies, the Bible says, are the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in us, which we have of God, and we are not our own. So we are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit resides inside of us. His desire is from the beginning of, uh, of creation. Think about this. His absolute desire, His love, His longing 
was to be a part of fellowship with man. I don't understand why. If you ask me why, Pastor, why would he do that? I don't know the answer to that. But it is his desire. When man sinned, it broke God's heart. He longed for there to be that fellowship again with us, His created beings. And He made a way in the Old Testament for there to be some covering, some temporary covering by way of the, the, uh, uh, the practices of the temple of offering sacrifice and atonement. He offered temporary uh, covering so that He could still fellowship with His people. His presence could be among them. And then we find when the Calvary takes place, we no longer have these temporary things. Now we have a permanent sacrifice. He died once for all, the Bible says. The blood of calves and goats don't redeem us from our sin, but the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ does. And now He lives and resides in us, and we get the think about this, we get the privilege and the fellowship of God in our own bodies. He comes and lives inside of us. We get the privilege to have His presence with us. I'm getting ready to go to lunch here this afternoon or, or maybe dinner tonight. I'll walk out of this place, I'll hop in the truck, and I'll go down the road. And guess what? God's with me. His presence is there. He's inside of me. He's, he's there with me. Do we understand the, 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 the magnificence of that truth? His love for us. This temple that He resides in now and the day that we live is our bodies. We need to live every day with the thrill that the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of me. I have His presence with me. He brings grace. He brings comfort. He brings direction. When needed, He brings chastening, which we don't like, but we need. He brings direction. He brings reproof. He brings conviction of sin. He brings illumination to His truth found in His Word. All of these things that we gain because of His presence... Oh, what a thrill. What a thrill. But notice John says this as he gets to these, this time of the, uh, the eternal uh, reign of Christ. He says in verse number 22, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. No need for a temple anymore. Their presence is very real. We get to abide with them. Can you imagine the first moment that our eyes get to gaze upon our Savior? I mean, we, we know His, His presence is in us and, and around us. We, we understand that. We've seen Him at work. He's proven Himself over and over again in our hearts. But can you imagine gazing upon Him for the first time? Can you imagine realizing, I get to, I get to be with Him. I get to be around I get to walk with Him. I get to spend time with Him, not just for a few short minutes, but forever. I look often on the news, I watch these, these photo ops that oftentimes men of power and great, great influence have with the, the lower folk, the common folk. You know what I'm talking about. And some of them are very, very good at being very gracious, don't they? They make that person feel very special for about ten seconds till they move on to the next one. And while they may be very gifted, their presence is just a brief moment. I'm thankful one day, when I come into God's presence, for the first time, face to face with Him, where my eyes see Him as He is, I'm thankful it's not just a brief moment. 
I'm thankful that since the moment I got saved, His presence has never departed. Oh, what a joy. No need for the temple. Why? Because God and the Lamb are the temple. What a thought. It's not yet happened in our, in our time plan of things and seeing the chronology of fulfilled prophecy. But you can mark it down, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. What a joy. These are the boring books of the Bible. At least that's what people call them. Isn't that amazing? There's so much richness in God's Word. that even in the boring books, the ones that talk about so-and-so begat so-and-so, I don't know how many times I've heard people say, Boy, I did real good till I got to Chronicles, <laughs> my Bible reading. Oh, there's so much good stuff in there. Things that draw our hearts close to Him. Let's look at a couple of the keys of Second Chronicles. In First Chronicles, we find a record of David's preparation for the construction and the service of the temple. We studied that last week. But in Second Chronicles, in verse, chapters 1 through 9, we find the building. It's devoted to the, the, the building and the consecration of the temple. And uh, then from Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 10 through 36, um, we find that the, the record is given primarily to the godly kings, the ones that did right in the eyes of the Lord in, uh, in Judah. Some of the key verses that I think are wonderful in here, and we're going to look at both of them. Found first, the first one's found in First Chronicles chapter 7. Many of you can quote this verse. It's a wonderful, wonderful verse. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse number 14. And this is the key to the cycle of idolatry and wickedness and the redemption and the, the return, the revival in the hearts of the children of Judah. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. There's one thing that I think is taught over and over throughout this particular book, and that is this, that whenever God's people forsake Him, He takes His blessings from them. But when they trust Him and obey Him, God gives them great victory. That principle holds true even in our daily lives. That when we forsake God in our daily walk with Him, those blessings that He used to give are not as, not as wonderful as they used to be. But when we continue in our trust and our faith in Him and our obedience to Him and His Word, then His victory in our lives is so noticeable, isn't it? So noticeable. The second uh, key verse, I think, is wonderful to read about in verse number 16. Another, another verse that just almost in a nutshell sums up the entirety of the subject of this book. Second Chronicles chapter number 16, and let's look in verse number 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong in the behalf, notice this, of them whose heart is perfect toward Him. Herein thou hast done foolishly, therefore from henceforth thou shalt have wars. What was God's desire? His desire was to show himself strong on their behalf, wasn't it? But he said, you've not, you've not done this. 
your heart has not been perfect toward me. Because of that, my hand of blessing, my hand of protection, my hand of victory is off of you, and you'll have wars. A wonderful lesson to be learned here. A wonderful truth from God's Word. A very sobering truth. Chapter 34 is the key chapter. Uh, as we get to the end of it, we find uh, a lot of uh, revivals and reforms taking place. Uh, chapter 34 uh, reviews a revival that takes place under Josiah. And uh, the book of the law is found, it is read, and it is obeyed. It is found, it is read, and it is obeyed. I'm going to go through very quickly, and I, I wish... No, I'm not. We're going to wait till next Sunday. I, I can't do it justice. Uh, we're about halfway through the notes today. And it's already been good, hasn't it? And uh, we've got some more to go yet through. Um, we'll, we'll do the rest of them next week. I, I want to go through and spend some time on... We're going to look briefly, just a summary of each of the kings uh, of Judah that are mentioned here and talk a little bit about each of their reigns. And there are some principles, there are some things that I think are critical for us to learn uh, through the examples, through the history that God has recorded for us in His Word. You know, the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. All of it is profitable. And God doesn't give a story in history. He doesn't give an indication of something that took place without there being a purpose for it for us. There's some reason for it for us. And so uh, we'll take time next week. I don't want to rush through and, and not do it justice. I want to make sure that we give it the time that is needed. So we'll go ahead and end there this week. And um, I'm going to wait to put the notes out till next Sunday. Uh, but we will make those available to you next Sunday, and uh, we'll go through those then. Okay? Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're so grateful and thankful for your word. Lord, how it challenges us, how it encourages us. So, Lord, sometimes brings conviction to us. Uh, I'm thankful for the times that it inspires us and edifies us, strengthens us for your work and your labor. I'm thankful for the reminder that it gives us of the wonderful privilege to have your presence with us. Lord, may we not quit.